hey, let's open our Bibles. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. And um, we'll pick up at verse 1 when we get there. Now, I have a question. Is the church broken? When I say, is the church broken, I'm not saying, is the you know, small C church, Osterville Baptist, broken. I'm asking a bigger question. Is the large C church, the universal church, broken? There's a lot of people asking that question right now. We've talked about a term recently, deconstruction. And I want to delve into that a little bit more with you this morning. I first became aware of this term a couple of years back, there were some very prominent Christian celebrities, prominent pastors, prominent worship leaders, prominent Christian authors who were coming out and they were saying, I am deconstructing from the faith. Now, there were two YouTube, top YouTube earners that I actually knew back in my college days that did this. Their name was Rhett and Link. Katie and I knew them. We were in a Christian organization called Crew. Uh, Rhett and Link were just incredible personalities. They would come into our meetings. They would run these hilarious skits. Uh, they also trained us in evangelism and Christian living and those types of things. We had a pretty good relationship with them. One time when they came into our campus, they lived in North Carolina. We were in West Virginia. We were excited and we came up to Rhett and Link and we said, guess what, guys? We're getting married. And then in unison, they both turned to Katie at the same time and they said, have you really thought through this? <laughs> Just great guys, fun guys. I loved watching them develop their YouTube channel. Uh, they were growing in prominence quickly. I thought to myself, this is a great thing, you know. It's great to see Christians entering into the space of entertainment, keeping it wholesome. Why should the devil own all of the entertainment? I was shocked in December 2020 when they released an hour-long video talking about why they were deconstructing from their faith. Uh, Rhett said it like this, if I don't have to believe in Christianity, why would I? Now, I tell you this because I, I don't think that Rhett and Link are alone. I think in some ways they're the tip of an iceberg. There are lots of people who are undergoing a process like this right now. Let's, let's put a definition to what deconstruction is. Deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs that you grew up with. And I want to say that that's not always a bad thing. Think Martin Luther. Martin Luther went into the Scriptures and he rediscovered justification by faith and it revolutionized the Western world. He went back to the Bible and he found that there was a truth that was no longer being processed anymore. We call that reformation. But the modern form of deconstruction usually means replacing uncomfortable tenets that are clearly found in the Bible with culturally or personally popular ideas. 
Now, the Gospel Coalition released an article recently which explained four causes for deconstruction, and I'd like to share two of those reasons with you. I think they're real reasons, and I think some of you may have experienced these. The first is church hurt. There's a lot of people that have had some kind of interaction in the church, a place that they viewed as a safe space, a place that they said, I can come to and find healing, not hurt, that experienced hurt. It's happened. Or it could come in the form of there was a Christian author or speaker or leader who you really looked up to and you said, I aspire to be like them who had a moral failure, which just leaves you asking the question, well, if they don't even believe what they're talking about, is it real? Is the church broken? Second one is poor teaching. I would say that this particularly affected the younger generation in the American culture. Uh, They grew up receiving teaching about the Bible and about the church that, I'm just going to be blunt, it was not theologically substantive at all. It was pablum. So what happened? They go off to college. Pablum meets well-reasoned argumentation. They're left with this faith crisis. Do I abandon logic or do I abandon my faith? And think about humanity. We are logical creatures. Which choice are they going to make? Now, that isn't to say that Christianity isn't well-reasoned. It is very well-reasoned, very plausible, but they weren't given any of that when they were raised. You see, these are There are other reasons for deconstruction, but I think these two actually align with our passage this morning as we're asking the question, is the church broken? Do we need to undergo a process of deconstruction, tearing it down to the studs, and then reconstruction, replacing it with something better? And the answer that I find in our text this morning is no, we don't. You see, If you look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, in this passage, Paul outlines this incredible vision for the church, for this beautiful community that Jesus created. And the vision that Paul unpacks in this passage created this community of believers that has outlived governments and new world orders in ups and downs in world history, it has outperformed, outlived, outlasted all of those things. So it must be something that we should take seriously. Well, I don't have time to go through all these verses with you this morning, so we're going to start with verses 1 through 6 as we ask the question, is the church broken? Next week, we're going to look at the second half, and I'm going to ask the question, do I have a place in the church through that text. So let's read it together. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I love, as I look through the New Testament, looking at the leadership of the Apostle Paul. He is a great leader. A great leaders know that they have to motivate you with influence, not with positional respect. My grandmother, my mamma Wheeler, used to always say, you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Now, as you read Paul's letters, he seldom just pulls rank. He doesn't come out and say, do what I say, because I'm the apostle Paul, and I told you to do it. No, he often says, this is what is true, therefore live like it's true. He's motivating you. Now, in this passage, he motivates us in two different ways. First, uh, to put it in modern lingo, he gives us his street cred. He says, I'm a prisoner, meaning I'm not just writing these things to you, virtue signaling to you from some white ivory tower while I'm safe and I'm saying you guys go off and do all these things. No, I'm living what I'm saying so much so that I'm willing to go to prison for these ideals. The other way he motivates is he says, I urge you to walk. In other words, he's like, have you been listening to everything I've been saying up to this point? I've talked to you about your identity in Christ, all the blessings that you have in Christ. I told you that you were once dead, but now in Christ you have been made alive, that you guys were once divided, you were in your own little tribes and and factions and divisions, and in Christ Jesus you were made one together. I've told you that Christ loves you so much you can't even intellectually comprehend how much he loves you. Therefore, I urge you, walk. To adapt the words of Uncle Ben to Peter Parker, with great privileges come great responsibilities. I urge you, walk. Now, walking is a great analogy for the Christian life. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples as he found them. He said, follow me. And then the disciples would drop what they were doing, whether it was a tax collector or a fisherman, and then they would start walking behind Jesus. It's a great analogy for the Christian life. We're called to do the same thing. Eugene Peterson describes discipleship like this. He says it's a long obedience in the same direction. Meaning you got to start walking, and you keep walking, and you don't stop walking, the only way that you can mess this discipleship thing up is by stopping the walk. Just keep walking. Well, where are we walking? Well, it's everything that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4 through 6. We're walking into this new life. And the first destination that he takes us to is chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. He says here, if I was to summarize the big idea, that we, the church, need to walk into eagerly maintaining unity. 
for a reason, not just unity for the sake of unity, not just so we can come together and sing kumbaya together and feel really good about that. No, we're maintaining unity in order to grow to look more like Jesus. And in these verses, verses 1 through 6, he tells us three things about unity. Look at verse 3. There Paul says that the church must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So the, the big idea here is it's the church's job to maintain unity, not create it. Here's the thing about unity. You can maintain it. You can mess it up. But you cannot make it. You can't make it. Someone already did that for us. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, Paul told us who made unity. It says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Who did that? Christ. He on the cross gave us a reason to be united. He made what is the same about us more foundational to who we are than what is different about us. And so now we have this precious gift that is called unity. And the big question we have to ask ourselves is, what am I going to do with it? You have to choose. How are you going to handle the unity? I think of it like this. I cannot make a Tesla. Now, you might think I could make a Tesla, but I have no idea how to make a Tesla. I don't have any idea how to make those batteries that run these cars and make them so efficient. I don't even begin to understand how to make those little chips that all these cars are running on with that chip shortage that you keep hearing about that run the computer systems. I don't even know if I've said some of those things correctly. But imagine if the Doge father himself, Elon Musk, reached into his deep Dogecoin wallet and he determined that he was going to gift me a Tesla. Well, now I have a choice on my hands. I could choose to maintain it. Well, how would I go about doing that? Well, I plug it in regularly and make sure that I keep it charged. I should wax and polish it. I should clean out the interior of the car. I should be ready to set aside money to pay outrageous fees for repair costs because the parts are so expensive. I could maintain it, maybe. Or I could choose to mess it up. And how do you do that? Well, that's real easy. Just don't do anything with it. Or as Katie says, the way I drive, I'd probably put dings and bumps all over the thing. So next time you jump in my car, just remember that. Now, the same is true of the church. How do we mess up the unity of the church? It's easy to do that. Create churches where everyone looks the same, thinks the same, and generally kind of associates around the same things. There was a church growth principle back in the 80s that they called the homogenous principle. Just make sure everyone thinks alike, looks alike, talks alike, and that'll grow the church. And it did, but the problem is, is it doesn't grow the unity of the church. It doesn't grow the kind of church that Jesus is trying to grow. He wants people who look different, think different, and act different in his churches. Another thing you could do is you could just keep all the relationships at the surface level. No one ever has to share anything deeper than their opinion. But the thing about the church is the church grows 
through the intimate relationships that are created in the church. Another way that I could mess it up is I could emphasize what is different above what's the same. We're the church that emphasizes this particular political perspective. We're the church where everyone thinks the same way about COVID. We're the church that messes everything up. So, I don't want to spend all morning talking about how we mess the unity of the church up, because really I'm more interested in learning how I maintain the unity of the church. And in this passage, Paul gives us two incredible principles on how we maintain the unity of the church. First, he tells us that we maintain it in verse 2 by exercising all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, That maintains the unity of the Spirit. So the principle that we're drawing here is that we maintain the unity of the Spirit by growing in Christ-like character. So when I'm growing in Christ-like character and when you're growing in Christ-like character and we're growing in Christ-like character, the unity of the church goes deeper. It turns out that character counts. Fill a church with immature people and you'll have a lot of bickering and a lot of fighting, and a lot of silliness, but you won't have unity. But as the people of the church grow in character, the church grows in unity. Now these virtues in verse 2 are like a partial list of the fruits of the Spirit. If you look over at Ephesians, or Galatians 5, 22, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Now, as I look at these verses, that to me is a description of the character of Christ. If you ever thought to yourself, what did Jesus look like as he was walking around in Galilee and in Jerusalem? He looked like that, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, notice that the word fruit is singular, not plural. These are not the fruits of the Spirit, as if you have a tree that grows like bananas and apples and oranges all on the same tree. No, this is one fruit. You have to think of this more like an orange. Now look at this orange that's coming up. There's a cross-section, right? And you have different compartments within the same orange. So you have love and joy and peace and patience, etc., So that I can't say that I'm just going to kind of particularly focus on one aspect of the character of Christ. That's going to be my fruit. You know, I'm I'm a faithful guy, but I'm not a very gentle or patient guy. I'm not going to work on that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. What Paul tells us in this passage is if you're going to grow to look like Jesus, you're getting all of Jesus. He's going to grow you in patience. He's going to grow you in gentleness. Think about the last two years. What did the last two years reveal about character in people? Well, what I saw was a lot of vitriol, bitterness, division, people that were treating one another like strangers. And I wish I could stand up to you before you today and say, you know, the church just... It was different. You walked into churches and they were just full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I can't say that for the Big C Church. 
There were plenty of examples where churches divided. In fact, I, I heard of a church that they had 40 people and they split at 40. Like, how do you do that? They did. But Rob, weren't you saying that the church isn't broken? It seems to me like you're saying this morning that the church is broken. I'm not saying that at all. No, what I'm saying is that there are healthy churches and there are unhealthy churches. There are mature believers and there are immature believers. There are churches that actually practice what the Bible says and there are churches that are filled with people that don't have anything to do with the fruit of the Spirit. So the, the answer to this church hurt problem is not to abandon the church altogether. It's to find a healthy church. Well, what does a healthy church look like? Well, as I think of a healthy church, I believe healthy churches are teaching the Bible. They're elevating substance, that which is timeless, that which is true, that which is important, that which is significant above form, that which is much less important. And we'll get to more of that later. Healthy churches cultivate real relationships because they know if you get relationships wrong, little else matters. So there are places where people really love one another. There are places where given enough time, you actually become known. And if you're absent, you're missed. And you're cared for when you're hurting. And you get the immense blessing of doing the same for others. Healthy churches are growing together. Because the Holy Spirit has designed the church in such a way that the only way you can grow is through other people. You need them in your life. You need real relationships around you. Healthy churches have a heart for the community. They walk the talk they feel called to love the people out there to both preach Jesus and do good deeds in the name of Jesus. Healthy churches pray because they know that you can't do anything significant for God without His enablement. Healthy churches are generous with their resources. It was Jesus who said it is better to give than to receive. Healthy churches believe that people are its greatest resource. And we're going to ask the question next week, is there a place for me in the church? And I'm just going to telegraph it. The answer is yes. And it's because every member of the body is gifted and necessary for the overall purpose of the church. If you don't show up, if I don't show up, the church is hurt. And it doesn't fulfill the same purpose and vision that it could. Healthy churches love lost people. They don't view people as the enemy. They view people as loved by God. They go to people outside of the walls of the church. And most of all, healthy churches place Jesus at the center of it all. Because it's not about me. And it's not about you. It's about him. Now notice I didn't say perfect churches. Because I've been around for a little bit of time, and I haven't found a perfect church yet, and I've heard the quip before that when you find the perfect church, don't stay there because you will mess it up. <laughs> so I'm focused in on the healthy side of things, and, and if I find a healthy church, that's where I'm sinking my roots. That's where I'm going to grow. Now, let's move on to the next principle that Paul has for us. We're looking now at verses 4 through 6 again. Let me reread those to you. He says, There is one body... 
and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, the principle I see here is that we maintain unity by emphasizing sound doctrine. Remember, we have to learn how to emphasize what's the same about us above what is different. So here, Paul gives us a sevenfold confession of the unifying realities of the faith. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So doctrine, it turns out, is so important. Sometimes we look at doctrine and we say, that's more for like the intellectuals and, and those types. No, it's for all of us. It is centering for the church to have good doctrine. And as I shared earlier, some are deconstructing because they've received bad doctrine or poor teaching of that doctrine. The answer to bad teaching is not to abandon the church altogether. I want to suggest it's to find a place that is good in doctrine, sound in doctrine. And here's the thing. What you learn as a church becomes more sound in its doctrine is they know what's essential and they know what's not essential. I love this article that I read recently from Tim Challies. He wrote, when unanimity is the enemy of unity. And in it, he says that much of the division that stems from division stems from confusion between stems from a confusion between unity and unanimity. Now that's a hard word to say. What unanimity means is that there is total agreement across the board. Okay, total agreement. Well, Chelly says that while every Christian doctrine matters, not every Christian doctrine matters in the same way and to the same degree. So you have to actually develop categories for doctrine, and I'm going to give you four here. Some doctrines are essential. Okay, you have to think of that sevenfold confession Paul gave just now. You have to think the Trinity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the gospel, the inerrancy of the scriptures. Those are essential. They are the place where we actually have to have unanimity. Why? Because if I give up on those foundational truths, I'm not even in the space of Christianity anymore. I'm somewhere else. Some doctrines are urgent. These are doctrines that mark real distinctions between local churches and denominations. You may have asked yourself the question before, why are there different, so many different denominations? Well, Part of the reason is around these urgent doctrines. They've read the Bible. They've come to different conclusions. You can think of this in terms of baptism, communion. Those are urgent doctrines. Now, I just want to be clear. The kingdom of God is a big, beautiful dynamic. It means that there are other churches that look at some of these urgent doctrines and they, they've drawn different conclusions from me and I can actually still partner with those churches. I can stand shoulder to shoulder with them and preach the gospel with them and, and love the community with them and participate with them. But it gets a little more difficult when we become a small C church 
when we disagree on diff, uh, urgent doctrine. For example, if someone says, I believe strongly that the pastor should be baptizing my baby. I don't hold that conviction. I believe that a, a person is baptized when they've placed their faith in Christ, and that's a response to that, that, that beautiful transformation that's come about as they place their faith in Christ, a response to their salvation. So it's okay. We can disagree on that matter, but at the same time, there are churches that hold to that urgent doctrine. Some doctrine are important. These are not essential. You can think of concerns like divorce, remarriage positions, what Bible translation is used for sermons. For OBC, we have certain end times leanings, but we don't make that grounds for membership when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. We don't make that grounds for membership. In fact, if you look into our doctrine, we tend to place many things in this category because we understand good Christians draw different conclusions, and we want to partner with you. And we want to advance the kingdom of God together. Now, some doctrines are unimportant. Okay? These have no basis in division at all. Think music style or kind of instrumentation for corporate worship or how long the, uh, the pastor preaches or the service length. Uh, by way, when I say unimportant, I don't mean objectively unimportant. Like music is important. It speaks to the heart. It's good to connect with God through music. But what I mean by unimportant is it's not important for the unity of the church. It's just not I've come to the conclusion that I could worship in any style of worship setting. I don't care if the church is highly liturgical, meaning the reading from like psalms and hymns and all that kind of stuff, or more traditionally bent, or on the hyper-conservative side of their music. If that church is preaching the gospel, if that church is being, uh, preaching the word of God with integrity, if they're making disciples, if they're loving the community, I'm there. I'm good. Let's, let's play ball. Now, here's the big question. When you think of those four categories, which category do you see that Christians tend to divide mostly over? Can you guess? Yeah, unimportant. Unimportant. I didn't like the carpet color. I didn't like that decision. You know, knowing how to keep the main thing the main thing is critical for maintaining the unity of the church. Why? Because I can't even get 300 of you to agree upon a pizza order. I can't. You know, we, we all have different preferences, right? Different instincts. I don't like that stylistic decision. I don't like the decor. I don't like that they spent on that. A host of decisions that, that leadership structures and churches need to make. And, and for the church to function, you have to entrust people to make those kind of decisions. But those tend to be the space where we divide. Different instincts, different impulses, different feelings, different opinions, different convictions. For this unity thing to work, we must grow increasingly more flexible as we move 
away from the essential matters toward the unimportant matters. In fact, I say that the church must maintain a flexible state of rigidity. Got that? Rigid on the essentials, unbending. Flexible as I move towards the unimportant. As we close, think about what Jesus has given us. He's given each one of you a reason to unite. As I look out at the world right now, the world will give you a multitude of reasons to break up, to divide, to become your own little group, your own little tribe, your own little person. But Jesus is creating this beautiful, united community called the church, where as different as we are, we can unite because that which is the same about us is far more important than that which is different about us. Now, my final question for you as you're processing all of this is, how are you maintaining that Tesla? As I've thought about the unity of the church, I'm convinced that the unity of the church begins with me. It's easy to form categories and say they and the church and the leadership and that group and and to separate myself from the unity of the church. It's their fault. It's not my fault. It begins with me. Am I growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Am I quick to unite, slow to divide? Am I always seeking to keep the main thing the main thing? It begins with me, not you. Father, as we consider what we've looked at this morning in your scriptures, I'm just so thankful for this gift that Jesus has given us, this gift of unity. I love the reality that the church has been a place for millennia, where people from different backgrounds, from different languages, different cultures, have found a reason to be brought together. Some of the harshest human divides that have existed in, in world history have been conquered in the church when the church is at its best, when the people of the church are growing in the fruit of the Spirit and when they're keeping the main thing the main thing. And we confess, Lord, that when we mess those things up, then we become just like anyone else, sometimes worse. I pray for the one who is here this morning and maybe this is their first Sunday or maybe, Lord, they have uh, been coming for quite some time and they've just been processing faith. I pray for them, Lord that the reality of Jesus would grow and dawn in their heart even now. And I pray that this would be a space for them, Lord, to journey and to grow and to come to know you and to follow you and to see that this is a space where you will be loved and cared for, a place where you will be given a purpose. We're so grateful, Lord, for what Jesus gave us. It's a beautiful gift. And we want to live it to the fullest for the sake of your glory. Amen.